welcome to this episode of the seven investing podcast here at seven investing we are here to empower you to invest in your future i'm jo- my name is simon erickson i'm founder and ceo of seven investing i'm joined by my fellow lead advisors of seven investing max chatsko dan klein and steve simington gentlemen happy almost halloween uh, I am uh, I am going through costumes as fast as I can. I'm I'm somewhere between Sad Elmo and the clown from It. I can't decide. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing which one of those you choose, Dan. Uh, we'll also be joined later on in the program by Austin Lieberman and some thoughts from uh, our other lead advisor, Matt Cochran. But the question on everyone's minds right now is the election that we have coming up next week. And what is this going to mean for the stock market? And so we've compiled some research from our friends over at YCharts which actually, surprisingly as it might be, says it doesn't matter who is in office at the time. The business world is going to do what the business world is going to do. There's a lot of speculation that Republicans are good for the economy, but we saw George W. Bush's go through the dot-com and the 2008 financial crisis, totally irrelated to the president himself. And then also Bill Clinton and President Obama, two Democratic candidates, had two of the greatest stock market returns during their tenure. And so we're going to include that information from Charts. It was really kind of eye-opening. But I kind of want to open this up to the team to talk about, not just in terms of elections, not just in terms of politics, but also in terms of government. Because we do think that government could have a larger impact on the stock market and the business world at large, whether that's trade agreements, whether that's political agendas, whether that's interest rate decisions or something else. And so Dan, we'll start with you on this, but the question that I'd really like to pose to the entire team is, what role does government play in your investing process and your investing strategy? Go ahead, Dan Klein, please go first. Yeah, so it's it's very little uh, because the reality is government's not looking to hurt business, you know, and. When we're looking at the two candidates, Joe Biden is a very, very pro-business moderate. Is he going to make some changes around the edges? Absolutely. Might there be some capital gains tax changes? Yeah, for the richest of people. But the reality is when it comes to regulating business, I actually think the biggest government danger is their inability to understand. So let's look at an area I cover, and that's cable television. The FCC doesn't directly regulate cable. They regulate uh, broadcast networks. But They don't really understand their market and sort of how anything works. And if you remember the days back when like Howard Stern was fighting the FCC, it's really like a bunch of old men in a room, even if they're not a bunch of old men who don't understand. And that's what we're seeing with the social media regulations right now. You know, it's really difficult to argue monopoly, even in places where, you know, look, does Google dominate search? Absolutely. But are there other choices? Yes, there are. Uh, Are there other ways to get information? Absolutely. So I do feel like government can do harm with things it doesn't understand. Right now, that's technology, which is being demonized. That could change to something else. So I generally want industries to self-regulate. Like we've talked about this before. My family's in the ladder and scaffolding business. In the ladder and scaffolding business, ladders are, are regulated by OSHA. OSHA standards are written by the industry. So my father would write, say, a standard for wooden stepladders, and then the rest of the industry would debate it. And in most states, if you all agree to a standard, that standard becomes the law. And if you meet the standard, you don't have any liability. That's not true in every state. But so, you know, you engineer your ladder. So a 300-pound rated ladder can take 1,200 pounds. You did all the tests. Somebody weighs 1,400 pounds and breaks your ladder. They can't sue you. That's what I'd like to see the internet be doing. That's what I'd like to see all the social media, all the digital companies come up with some standards on data use and sharing and privacy. I mean, we know 
you mention a product and somehow Facebook knows you mentioned it and it starts showing up in your feed. We've all had the creepy ads. Some of that stuff has to be regulated, but I'm not overly, I have a lot of concerns about government, but I'm not overly concerned about government's impact on business because look, we all want jobs. We all, we all want more people to work. It's really, the more they get involved, the more harm they tend to do. It makes a lot of sense, Dan, especially the point you said about how self-regulating would be the, the, best outcome probably for social media companies and the internet at large. Do you think that's the most likely outcome or what do you expect will happen and what impact will that have on those companies? So I think we need to get rid of the political rhetoric. And, and that's difficult to say The there's a bias against conservative media. There's a bias against whatever it is. The problem is like, so Facebook and Twitter have taken some pretty big steps to create like internal boards and content standards and rules. And it's really, really tricky to do because some of it's judgment. You know, what is, is my article that's an opinion piece on a certain company? Is it biased? Well, it's inherently biased. It's an opinion piece. Like, but should it be labeled an opinion piece? Of course, it should be labeled analysis or something like that. How do you exactly regulate that? Like, a fact is a fact. You know, it rained two inches last night. Now, someone might say, well, 100 feet away, it rained 1.99 to eight inches. All right. That, but a fact is a fact. Some things just aren't facts. They're opinions or there's gray area or there's room. And it's really difficult if I'm you know, posting something on Twitter to si decide exactly when I'm wrong. That said, there's also some of that old, well, when something's really wrong, I know it's wrong, where we could be doing a lot more to take down misinformation. Look, there has been a ton of misinformation about the pandemic. I mean, how many people saw memes about like, you know, how masks cause you to breathe in carbon dioxide. And then like every doctor on earth who wears a mask all day long came out and said, well, that's, that's not true. That's not how it works. And Facebook and Twitter were not quick to take that kind of misinformation down. So when we can't even agree on who the experts are, all of this becomes really tricky, but I do think it has to be industry done because I don't know about you, Simon, but do you have a lot of faith that Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, you know, to pick people on two other sides of the aisle, that they're big like Instagram users, that they like totally understand the inner workings of Facebook. These are people who call it the face place or, or <laughs> tweeter. Like these are not technically savvy people. And look, there are technically savvy older people. My, my wife's grandfather at 99 was paying all his bills online and knew how to do, but Congress doesn't strike me as those people. So it feels like technology should regulate technology. I don't know if you do it with independent tribunals or there's all sorts of ways you can put it together, but it shouldn't be government. Steve, did you want to chime in on that? Any statement about what Dan said? <laughs> you can see me itching. I was thinking about, uh, it brought to mind those, uh, the congressional grillings we saw, was it last year where Congress basically proved they didn't understand you know, they're, they're like, why on my iPhone? He's like, well, we don't make the iPhone. This is the CEO of Google. And then, you know, sen this infamous Senator, we run ads moment when they asked how <laughs> Facebook can be free. And it, it's just, yeah. So the regulation kills me, but I think it's important to note too, that most of these executives had said that they are for regulation as long as it's the right kind of regulation. And that's not a, as long as we can make sure it's in our favor kind of comment, they say, well, we, if we, we want regulation, we want it to be properly built uh, so that it makes sense. And, uh, and, and I honestly don't think they're trying to be self-serving uh, in, in those comments.
It certainly aligns with what the Department of Justice said just a couple of weeks ago when they said, hey, the ball is in your court to police your own sites. The terms and conditions of the site, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Twitter, whatever, is in the hands of the platform that's running that site. It's not going to be overly regulated. So great, great points. Go ahead, Dan. Last one. Yeah, and, and let, let me close out with, you know, there, there's obviously a lot of political theater here. But so like, let's look at Amazon. Oh, Amazon is so powerful. They, they dominate retail and they, they have AWS. Well, AWS competes with Microsoft. It competes with IBM. It competes with two or three other big players. Amazon, the store, competes with Walmart and Target and Best Buy. It's really hard to argue you're a monopoly when you have really big competitors. Like if I said McDonald's is a monopoly, you'd say, what about Burger King and Wendy's? And I'd say, yeah, no, McDonald's is a monopoly. Like it doesn't make any sense. So I think there's a lot of arguments here that are really just about making points. And I don't see any big move to break these companies up, you know, or, you know, or, or really to make big changes. I do think we're going to have endless, you know, meetings on it because it looks good. And in a lot of people, look, Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, they've angered a lot of people at various points. So it is sort of like good show to, to take them to task from both sides of the aisle. Yeah, great points, Dan. Max Chatsko, let's pull you into this conversation. We just published a piece, a written piece to all of our subscribers last week on this very topic. You talked about a lot of geopolitical factors that we might not be thinking about. What What is the role of government on your investing process? Yeah, I knew everyone was going to kind of stay domestic. So I, I went bigger and uh, went international on you guys. Because, I mean, how much more can we talk about the election in the U.S., right? So um, something that's really- A, a lot. Uh, the answer is a lot we could, <laughs> but please continue. <laughs> Apparently so. Um, yeah. So a few years ago, I read a couple books by Peter Zion, and uh, he just released another book last year. So he's a geopolitical expert, and he really opened my mind to, A, what is geopolitics? And B, oh, wow, this is crazy. Once you kind of understand it and see all the pieces come together, uh, it kind of opens up this whole new area for analysis, a whole new way of thinking and seeing the world. So- I guess the way to start is that, you know, uh, at the end of World War II, the United States had an intact economy and an intact Navy. And we went to all the allies who were rebuilding and said, hey, guys, uh, there's this thing called the Soviet Union. We'd like to contain it. So uh, we're going to defer to you guys on economic matters. You can export all your stuff to our consumer market and we'll guarantee trade routes. So historically speaking, this was insane. The allies couldn't like sign it fast enough, right? So this is called the uh, Bretton Woods Agreement. And this led to what is now the global order, right? We have globalization, you have supply chains in 17 different countries or whatever it might be. And most investors alive today, including all of us, uh, don't really have a, you know, appreciation for how things could be different, right? We've always had this system in place. So, you know, the problem with that though, is that the Soviet Union, of course, collapsed in, you know, 89, 90. And then the U.S. didn't update that policy at all. We basically have no foreign policy for the last 30 years. And we've started to see that kind of manifest in weird ways, right? Even domestically with some, you know, social unrest now, political instability, uh, economic inequality. A lot of it kind of ties back into, you know, the global order and us kind of taking it on the chin economically to defer on defense issues. So, you know, how does this start to impact investing? I mean, I have no idea, but I think it's something that people should start to watch um, in terms of, you know, for most of our lives, most of my, or all of my life as a, you know, as a millennial, um, you know, geopolitical consequences, advantages, disadvantages didn't matter. They were put on hold. And now that's starting to not be the case anymore. So we have to start to think about, you know, um, does it make sense to have, you know, international supply chains, are there risks to that now? Um, if, if different countries or there's different uh, 
bickering between different countries. I mean, the U.S. and China, I don't think it matters who wins the election coming up. I think China is going to be in the doghouse among the West for, you know, the next decade at least. And, you know, that could really go down in some weird sideways ways for investors. I mean, our company is going to get delisted from the American Stock Exchange if they're based in China. Our company is going to be allowed to operate so freely in China. I mean, I don't know, right? It's kind of crazy. But that's one of the things that if it goes down and you can kind of see it coming now, you know, it'd be a terrible thing to have kind of surprise you later, right? Um, I mean, look at this year, 2020, right? Nobody thought we'd be here in January 1st. Um, so things can happen that you don't think, uh, you know, might happen. But, you know, in one example, just to wrap this up, is Tesla, you know, at their battery day just a couple of weeks ago, uh, they were talking about, hey, guys, we're going to start mining lithium here in the United States. Like, that's a crazy thing to say. The United States doesn't even make lithium today, right? All lithium is made in Australia and South America. There's some in China. And, you know, it's like, why are you doing that? It's kind of weird. Well, I think it was a move to kind of contain some of the geopolitical risks that Tesla sees on the horizon. You know, uh, China consumes over half of the world's lithium. So it has a big thumb on the scale of prices, uh, boom and bust cycles in the market. And, you know, given how things are going, that might be a terrible idea if you need to consume a lot of lithium, as Tesla does. So containing the supply chain within the United States might make a lot of sense. You know, if there's a big bust or boom in the market internationally, but Tesla can source at least all of its U.S. consumption within the U.S., then it's insulated from that. It doesn't have to see crazy price spikes uh, and everybody would be insulated. Go ahead, Dan. <laughs> Max, do we have a big supply of lithium that we just weren't mining? Like, it feels like you'd mine it where it is. <laughs> yeah, so the U.S. has a lot of lithium. We have different deposits. They're clay deposits for the most part. So there's a lot in Nevada, for instance, and then there's some in uh, the Carolinas. Um, and, like, some of it's just we haven't developed it because our mining industry is not that big or different regulations. Um, but if you look at North America, you know, the U.S. has a ton of lithium we could be making. It might be a little more expensive, but again, maybe that plays like balances out with the risks. And then if you look at Canada, I mean, Canada has a lot of nickel and um, Cuba has cobalt. So like we have all the things we need to make batteries um, right here within our own little circle of the world. So, um, you know, it might not be a bad idea to explore some of that. Yeah, Max, you uh, mentioned global supply chains, and you also mentioned technology companies and China. So if I can connect the dots of all of those, we've seen some companies getting banned from the United States, TikTok and, and Huawei for national security concerns. Um, we've seen others delisted from the NASDAQ because of accounting irregularities. Uh, do you have any concerns about these large tech companies that have outsourced so much of their supply chain to China? Yeah, I mean, I just... Personally, I, I don't think this sounds crazy. I always sound like a crazy person when I talk about this, right? Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think China's a sustainable superpower. I don't even think it's going to be a regional superpower. Um, I mean, it can't source its own food for its population. It doesn't have its own energy. It can't guarantee its own trade. It has a really weak Navy and Air Force. I mean, there's a reason it's building islands in the South China Sea. It can't project power that far from its borders, right? So, like, I mean, it could be bottled up pretty easily by, like, Japan which doesn't even own a Navy, technically speaking, right? But yeah, so I mean, companies that chase China as growth, I get it. I see it. There's a lot of people, these giant markets, giant middle class. Yeah, it just makes me feel queasy. I don't like it. Well, great, great points on that one. Steve, any comments on Max's comments there? 
I feel like every time Max speaks, the, the, the more you know star is coming across the screen in my mind. It's like, oh, I didn't know that. That's rad. No, no, I, I uh, yeah. Those are some uh, feedback. great points, Max. By the way, info at seveninvesting.com. If you think Max is crazy or you want to chime in about the, the comments he made about China, uh, definitely a great perspective on that, though. Steve, let's, let's come to you. How does government uh, influence your investing style? Um, I try not to let it, I guess, is the short answer. Um, I had the opportunity back in August to interview Chris Mayer. He's the author of 100 Beggars and the founder of Woodlock House Family Capital. And 100 Beggars is a fantastic book about finding stocks that return 100 times your initial investment. And one of the things that we highlighted in that podcast back in August was that... um, I'm going to read a quote from Chris on some of the things they had in common. He said, most of the stuff that you read about the economy and forecasts and what GDP did and what the latest unemployment number is, all that stuff you can probably safely ignore. You look at these past hundred beggars and you can see how those kinds of concerns, they didn't really matter. They just plow through all these things. And over a period of decades, it doesn't matter. And I mean, that's really on base. And those are the kinds of businesses that we're looking for. Uh, when we're actually searching for recommendations uh, at Seven Investing. And that's something I think is really important is the kinds of businesses that you search for. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't see government and specific policies on trade impact your investments. Uh, You know, there's a lot of companies that had profits uh, compressed because of tariffs or, you know, certain trade policies, for example. And uh, those are things that you definitely have to keep in mind but they aren't necessarily long-term concerns all the time. So it's, it's just something that can uh, temporarily hold things back, create buying opportunities. Uh, those are the kinds of things that I try and keep in mind. But as far as you know, specific administrations or politics in general, uh, I try to find businesses that will succeed regardless of who's in power. And, uh, you know, and sometimes that's not easy, but uh, when you find them, those are the businesses that can continue to survive and thrive no matter what over the course of decades. So we might get a little too hung up on the short term, the current administration, the current policies, but in reality, we should be looking for the businesses that are standalone without any of that playing into the equation. Yeah. Yep. Great points. Uh, Steve, I'm going to take it in the completely opposite direction. I'm going to go 180 degrees opposite of what you just said for my segment and and say... (laughs) That I want to talk a little bit about the role of subsidies and, and also regulations and how this can impact not even necessarily individual companies, but pockets of the economy. And I gave two examples of this. Uh, one was my previous experience, which was in renewable energy. I, before uh, working with Seven Investing and several other roles, was developing renewable energy projects for one of the largest oil companies in the United States. And just the role of a subsidy is intended to fund the R&D of smaller companies to make certain pockets of of that market more competitive with existing uh, infrastructure and existing technologies. And so from a perspective of someone who's developing solar power projects, this was increasing the solar panel efficiency. And of course, now in certain regions of the United States, you're starting to see solar panels deployed as a power source that are competitive with natural gas production in the rest of of the United States. And so that was really made 
possible by a lot of those subsidies, a lot of those R&D tax credits, and then the tax credits for once they actually got up and running um, to make them more economical. So that's a political agenda. It didn't just impact certain companies, which it did, but now you start seeing solar applied everywhere. California is mandating new buildings have solar panels, and there's a rush for the infrastructure for solar, the solar economy. There are kind of second level impacts that came from that. And the other example that I give is in the, the medical industry, the High Tech Act of 2009. Um, this was something that mandated that hospitals would adopt the meaningful use of electronic healthcare records. And if they didn't, they would face hefty fines. And the first wave of this was everybody was talking about the Cerners, the Epic Systems of the world, the people that were benefiting from those EHRs, the electronic health records being deployed at hospitals. But this kind of also opened doors to data in, in, in the medical industry, which was very slow to adapt data. You were used to kind of having um, check marks on pieces of paper, you know, that were held in a file behind the clerk at the front of the hospital. And now you start seeing AI being deployed much more in the healthcare industry and much more in the industry and the medical industry as, as a whole. And so I guess that like my, to wrap this all together, I'm interested in subsidies and regulations, not even necessarily because of the first wave of companies that benefit from them, but the second level impact that they have on larger industries. And uh, I wanted to wrap up this podcast just with kind of a question of, we do have the election. Let's go full circle back here again. We talked about a lot of different things and how government plays a role in our investing, but just in a quick lightning round, what's one company that you think could be either a winner or a loser from this upcoming election? Max Chaska, let's start with you on this one. Well, I'm going to uh, take a page out of your book with renewable energy and say Next Era Energy. So it owns a couple of electric utilities in Florida, but it also owns a power generation business called uh, Next Era Energy Resources. So that company goes around the whole country and builds wind farms, solar farms, anywhere in the country. And then it will operate them or sell them off to the regional or, or local uh, utilities. So it's already doing very well. And most of that's dictated by economics, but you know, there is kind of this energy for, uh, I would say, political or social energy for, you know, hey, let's make this transition to decarbonize the economies more more quickly. Um, so if there's any, again, additional subsidies, as you said, uh, or even just a, a willpower, um, Next Era Energy will be a, a huge beneficiary. Great. How about you, Dan Klein? So I'm not going to go a specific company, but I'm going to look at a category. I think the status of companies that are based in China absolutely hinges on this election. And I'm not saying that if we have a change in regime, there's not going to be increased regulation, but I think there's going to be a process. What happened with, with ByteDance, uh, the parent company of TikTok, was basically a hijacking. There was no process. There was no due diligence. There was, there was no due process. And I do think if we have a change in the president, we are still going to try to make foreign companies uh, adhere to SEC rules. But I don't think we're just going to pick random ones and decide to ban them overnight by presidential order. I think that, you know, that is definitely something we'll have a, a normal process for. I'm trying really hard to not be political here while saying something really political. So I'm going to stop talking. It's a tough one when I spot you up with a <laughs> political question to begin with, right? <laughs> How about it, Steve Symington? I I, uh, I'm going to pick a company I think can win regardless of who's in power uh, in keeping with my previous uh, assertions. I, I'm going to go with Tesla. I think, I think they win whoever stays in power, but um, 
we shouldn't forget that they're not just an electric vehicle maker. They are, they have bigger goals when it comes to renewable energy, uh, you know, with their acquisitions in solar and uh, the power wall, the, the roof that Elon Musk is saying is going to be such a big deal perpetually, eventually, I, I, I suppose it will be. But, uh, you know, if we have a Biden administration, um, I think maybe they kind of get supercharged in that area uh, if we have green energy friendly policies. Uh, but they've obviously been doing just fine under the current administration. Um, and, you know, you, we've seen what's happened with their share price and and, uh, you know, the fifth straight quarter of gap profitability, right, I think. And uh, there's, you know, you can you can argue semantics all you want about how they achieved uh, that profitability, but uh, they're they're thriving right now. And I think they do well uh, in in any scenario. So. Yeah, Elon Musk certainly knows how to adapt to any administration. And, and Steve, Tesla was actually going to be my company as well. You and I think about <laughs> the same thing on so many different topics. <laughs> Um, but Tesla, like you said, uh, Biden has committed to 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations across the highways of the United States. He wants to put $400 billion to work into basic R&D. Just imagine what Elon Musk, one of the greatest innovators we have in America, could do with, with something like that. Um, and so, again, you know, Tesla, uh, ticker on that TSLA from, from Steve Symington and myself, Max Chasco going with Next Era Energy, ticker NEE, and Dan going with China, ticker CHINA. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, if I need to pick a company, let's say Alibaba or like, you know, any of those big companies that aren't necessarily US based, uh, you know, doing a lot of business here, but they do have products that are here that, you know, that we're going to look really heavily at where our data is going. Great ideas. Gentlemen, thanks very much for chiming in with your thoughts about what the election might mean for investing. We're going to share some additional thoughts from Austin Lieberman and Matt Cochran uh, a little bit later in the program. And please stay tuned as we as we follow up with them coming up next. Okay, and we're back. I'm joined now by my colleague, Austin Lieberman. Austin, we've been all over the place this week, but dedication, we're getting your perspective heard on the podcast here today. Uh, we're talking about politics and government and how that affects our investing style this this month. How would you say that government impacts your style as an investor? Yeah, um, thanks, Simon. Uh, happy to be here and happy we were able to work this in. I wish I could have joined everyone else, but we're we're making it happen and we're working distributedly and virtually, so it's great. Um, this is going to sound weird, but government to me is everything, but also government and politics. Uh, in some ways I completely ignore it. And so in a way it's everything. And when I say that, I mean, just broadly, I, you know, more than 75% of my portfolio consists of companies that are headquartered in the United States. Right. And so when I say government is everything, when I'm investing in companies, I generally want them to be in countries in regions that I feel like there's stable government, a rule of law, democratic process and, and not, you know, a, a dictatorship, just because I believe that that sparks innovation. We've seen through history that sparks company growth. And um, just in, in our limited history as a, a country in the United States, compared to the rest of the world, um, our markets have done pretty good over time. So that's sort of how I look at it and what I compare it to. So when I've, but then when I've found countries that I feel are appropriate to invest in, which um, 
the United States. And then in general, I, I do like to look internationally. So I also consider companies that are in Latin America, Western Europe, Australia, and even parts of Asia. Um, and there's certain parts of Latin America that are like, eh, we, the things get pretty crazy there. But, but still, um, I'm comfortable that they're uh, at least in parts of the world that are either um, attempting to be democracies or, or making progress in that way and, and have um, governments that feel like they're moving in the right direction. When we talk about the our current political scene in the United States, I don't focus on it too much. I feel like if I did, I, I wouldn't want to invest at all if I let it <laughs> impact my investments too much because um, it's so polarizing. And depending on what our biases are or what we want to believe, we can find we can find stories to reinforce our beliefs and then we can find narratives um, to be really upset or frustrated or, you know, figure out the negative impact of um, either party being uh, in, uh, in the administration. But I think what we've seen over time, we've had Democrats as presidents, we've had Republicans as presidents. Our market has done pretty well. And there's times where the market hasn't done well. And it, I don't think it's really correlated to um, what party or who is in office. Um, I think I think our country through history has proven that uh, we're, we're more than, you know, one person or one administration and, and good and bad. We've, we've prospered through it all. If you look at the, uh, the history of the stock market. And so we've seen it this, this week, it feels like the market's down. I don't even know what it's down seven or 8% or something like that. Is it because of the election? I don't know. Is it because of coronavirus? I don't know. Is it because uh, we had, companies report earnings and some of the, the guidance was, I don't, I don't know why. Um, it would be really easy to say that this is because of the election and because we, the market has decided that one person is going to win and, and the other person isn't. Uh, but I, I don't think, I don't think that's the case. I think this is just what happens in the market. The market has had a really good run this year, given everything. And and now we're seeing coronavirus spike again. We're close to an election, which there's a lot of unknowns. And I think this is completely normal. And actually, it's healthy for the market. You, you can't have a market that just goes up. That That's how bubbles form. So I'm kind of happy that this is happening. It, it stinks to like lose money, at least in, in your portfolio. But in this is healthy for markets. Um, so yeah, I... It's a real roundabout answer, Simon. I guess to answer the question, it's everything, but then it's it's nothing in terms of uh, whether or not it's going to make me invest or not invest. I'm just sticking to my my process. A good old faith in the American economy and business innovation. And you know, Austin, we published in our articles uh, for subscribers last week. You know, we we asked we asked each of us for a company that you would stand by. You picked Twilio. Uh, maybe just a, a a quick minute or so on what you really like about this company and what it is that really attracts you to this as an investor. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've been a fan of Twilio for years now, and what I like about them is that they are just building a cloud-based communications platform. And by communications, it's mostly the ability for applications to talk to each other. And so, um, but they've, they're also, they've also introduced more recently, and this is why I'm really excited about the company right now. They just had their, 
their signal conference, which is their annual conference. And they're introducing a lot of new products that are um, really trying to help the like retailers provide real time customer communications and customer updates. So that might look like a retail associate in a store with this new product frontline that Twilio is introducing that could be communicating with customers through WhatsApp or another, uh, even SMS or another chat, chat app. And the customers could be asking for updates on a certain size of shoe or even a picture of a certain style that might be in or whatever it might be in the store. And, and the associates are going to be able to, they, they call them deskless, um, deskless workers, people that don't work at a desk, but work around stores. They're able to travel around the store, interact with customers, provide a really good customer experience. Um, and then they're integrating real-time video and uh, just the ability to really customize the customer experience. So I'm excited about that. Additionally, um, they just acquired Segment, which is going to give them a lot of great insight into um, customer data and analytics and, and really tie that together. And that's going to help Twilio's customers. And then they've been working on what's called Twilio Flex, which is a programmable contact center. And so when we think about contact center, it's, um, you know, the, the best example I could think of is like cable companies and, and telecom companies that have a bunch of people, you think of them in, in big call centers that are doing customer service and, and answering calls. Well, they have the ability to now work from anywhere and do it from home. And with Flex, Twilio's programmable contact center, they can build it exactly the way they want it and customize it and um, really give their agents the ability to um, interact with customers and provide good customer service from a contact center perspective. So those are kind of like the desked workers. So there's a lot going um, right in Twilio's direction. They're, they're building a really solid, you know, enterprise communication platform to provide a lot of critical functions for businesses. And it's still, I looked, I think around a $50 billion market cap company. Um, I could, I could see it um, growing for a really long time. Yeah. And I like the customizing the customer experience. I think that should be their new tagline actually. Um, yeah. Let's, let's, let's wrap this up with our, with our colleague, Matt Cochran too, who wasn't able to be here with us on the, on the call at all this week, but I did want to make sure that his perspective was heard as well. Uh, he said that depending on the winner of the loser of the elect, depending on the winner or loser of this election, he believes the financial sector, specific, specifically big banks, have more at stake than most other sectors. Uh, he has pointed out that the Trump administration has lowered taxes and eased regulations, and yet still many banks, such as Wells Fargo, have struggled. If Biden wins, he expects that they, we might see corporate taxes be raised and regulations tightening. But he says, regardless of the outcome of the election, we are probably in a very low interest rate environment, no matter who wins, and that could create a difficult environment for big banks to thrive. Uh, so he's keeping an eye on, uh, if there is a Trump victory, he says that there might be two big banks, such as Bank of America or J.P. Morgan Chase, which could be good investment ideas. Uh, Austin, neither you nor I is a banking expert, but any thoughts about Matt's comments about what's going on in the banking industry? Yeah, my first thought is I defer to Matt because he's much smarter than you <laughs> or me in banks. Um, I I don't care who wins the election. I'm not investing in banks. They just don't appeal to me and make sense to me. But one interesting thing is a couple of years ago now, I guess it was like 2018, which feels like 10 years ago, 
people were really scared about interest rates going up, right? Like I remember we were thinking about getting a mortgage on a house and we were worried about interest rates like skyrocketing. They were supposed to go and then they plummeted. So everyone's thinking interest rates are going to stay low. The only thing I could think is like, that probably means they're actually going to go up sooner than everybody's thinking. I still don't know if that means banks are a good investment. Um, they, you know, the fact of the matter is there's PayPal and uh, Square with Cash App that are just innovating and appealing to millennials and the younger generation. And I just don't know how the banks are going to catch up to that. Yeah. And I think and Matt nails it right. This is a combination for banking of interest rates. And, you know, that's going to be very low for the extended future. And then regulations, you know, regulations on whether you can pay out your dividends as a bank, what your capital ratios are, all of those things factor into, and that all plays a part with government. Uh, hey, Austin, thanks for joining me. I know it was a little bit after hours here, but we really appreciate your perspective on this podcast as well. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Yep. And just to recap, we had some ideas that we came out with on this on this show. Next Era Energy was one that was mentioned by Max. That ticker is NEE. Uh, Dan had a collection of Chinese companies uh, that we mentioned uh, in various uh various capacities. Steve and I mentioned Tesla, ticker on that is TSLA. Austin just mentioned Twilio, T-W-L-O, and Matt mentioned J.P. Morgan. And so that's a wrap for our team podcast here today. We looked at the intersection of politics and investing and what that could mean for the stock market and your portfolio. Uh, if you're interested in seven investing, our mission is to empower you to invest in your future. We're picking our seven best stock market ideas every single month and providing them for $17. We encourage you to come, we encourage you to come check us out at www.7investing.com. So for my entire team, I'm Simon Erickson. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.